because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. On today's show, I have a really interesting guest. Her name is Naomi Zeibt, S-E-I-B-T. You may have heard of her under the banner of the anti-Greta, as in anti-Greta Thunberg, the teenage Swedish activist who is an advocate of climate catastrophe and the rapid elimination of fossil fuel use. And Naomi Zeibt has risen to prominence, unfortunately nowhere near as much as Greta, but still quite a bit of prominence. She was covered extensively by the Washington Post. I believe she was even on the front page uh, of the Washington Post. And she is what she would call a climate realist. So she's been challenging climate catastrophe. And one reason I wanted to have her on is that recently she has come under attack by the German government. That when I saw this, I thought, okay, this is this is true censorship. This is not just this is not a platform deciding that her content is inappropriate on its own, but this is actually the German government telling her you are not allowed to speak about these issues because you're not sufficiently climate friendly. And I've I've um, not gotten to know Naomi, but I've corresponded with her uh, a bit over Twitter over the last several months. And I think that in this case, she's really being persecuted. So I thought it'd be good to bring her on to have her tell her story about this persecution in particular, but also her story in general, as I think it's it's really interesting to hear how a young person comes to think so differently about an issue that obviously I care a lot about, and also how she's been able to rise to prominence and influence quite a few people. So I'll be back on the other side with Naomi Zeibt. All right. I am joined now by Naomi Zeibt. Naomi, welcome to Power Hour. Thank you so much for inviting me. I have been listening to your show for a very long time, actually. Started listening to your podcast uh, back in beginning of 2019, probably. So I'm a big fan. <laughs> oh, well, it's it's good to have you. So let's let's start out by talking about just how you got into this issue. I think I probably became aware of you first through the Heartland Institute, maybe talking about you, but you know, you've gotten some interesting mainstream media coverage and sometimes you know, you're know you young and female and have passionate ideas about energy and climate, so you get called the anti-Greta. Uh, but let's talk first about how did you get interested in this issue and when did you start getting interested in this issue or this set of issues, I should say? Well, for me personally, it didn't actually start with climate change. And I think it was a similar process that you went through as well. I started with um, questioning my own political philosophy and I became a libertarian um, in high school, basically. So maybe four or five years ago, I started- What were you before that? Before that, I was completely non-political. I was not interested in politics at all. Uh, I thought it was completely boring when I was in middle school. And uh, I still to this day think that politics in itself is not very interesting. Um, But then in high school, I started to question what are my highest moral values? And then I came to the conclusion that um, my moral principles are meaningful to my idea of what the perfect society would look like. And so I had to question my political philosophy. And I started watching YouTubers like Stefan Molyneux. And I got into classical liberalism and uh, read lots of books, um, for example, some economics books um, by Friedrich Hayek, uh, Milton Friedman and Ludwig von Mises. 
And then after a while, I, um, I started exploring all the different political topics that were relevant at that time. Um, for example, the migration crisis and um, feminism, uh, gender issues, uh, all of those topics. Um, and then at some point in 2019, I think, um, climate change became popular uh, because of Greta Thunberg who was uh, very famous, um, especially in the beginning of 2019, and she started those Fridays for Future protests. And before that, I would say that I was basically a climate alarmist myself. And I, um, I thought that, well, all the scientists agree that climate change is real and man-made and catastrophic. So why would I disagree? Um, but then I came to the, the realization that if I wanted to call myself a skeptic, I had to look into every single issue even though back then I thought that uh, that was probably just a conspiracy theory because everyone seemed to agree, um, and especially all the scientists whom I looked up to, um, that climate change is real, man-made, and catastrophic. Let, let, me ask, so, let me ask about that. So yeah. did you have a sense by that point that sometimes when there are these statements of expert consensus that there's something off? Because I, I remember it always made yes. a big impression on me that we look at history and we tend to think of people in the past as being wrong, including majorities as being wrong, and even yeah. majorities of experts or declared experts or designated experts as being wrong. And yet today we assume, oh, the majority is right and the experts are right. So I, I had for a long time just an idea. I mean, I did was I thought climate catastrophism was probably true when I started, but I definitely had an idea of it could definitely not be true. And I think that's most people yeah. don't have that premise. Yes, definitely, especially because I was more of a science enthusiast than a politics enthusiast in, in middle mm. school, actually. So um, I thought to myself, well, this consensus argument is not really a scientific argument at all. And um, where does this number, 97% of scientists agree, even come from? And what do they actually agree on? That climate change is real? Well, yes, everyone agrees that climate change is real, I think. Um, so what really is the more precise question that we have to ask, which is, uh, is it real, man-made and catastrophic and caused by CO2 emissions? But I never saw this causal relationship. Nobody ever seemed to explain to me this causal relationship between CO2 emissions and the rising the rise in temperature. And then apart from that, of course, um, we haven't actually experienced that much of a temperature change, um, not as much as the IPCC predicted, at least. And so I started looking into it a little more in the beginning of 2019. I started listening to your podcast. I don't even remember how I found out about your podcast. I probably just saw uh, one of your speeches about your book online. And um, I saw some speeches by, for example, Dr. Richard Linson. Uh, you already had him on your podcast as well, I think. And um, uh, yeah, that was episode Curry, five. So you've listened to old episodes. Yeah. Yes, I have very old episodes. <laughs> I went through all of them. And um, Judith Corey, for example, and then I found her blog. So your podcast was really an amazing uh, source of information to find out about, about all, the, all those scientists that had been silenced before. And so I found their websites and I got access to more studies and information. And I taught myself how to read those studies properly and compare them to the, to the information that the IPCC put out there, for example. Yeah, and then after a while, I came to the realization, well, what the IPCC called science is mostly just based on climate models, which are basically silly computer games, as I call them sometimes. Um, and there's nothing wrong with climate models, but when those climate models produce wrong um, 
results and we can we can see after 10, 20 years that those um, predictions that they made were actually wrong, then they should adjust their factors and they should change those models, the factors in the models, but they didn't. In fact, now uh, they just they just released a statement. I, I saw an article in The Guardian where they said that now um, they they uh, their estimates for climate sensitivity is even higher now and we should be even more concerned about the future because uh, CO2 emissions are even more harmful. So that just doesn't make any sense to me. And at some point, I just figured there must be some kind of agenda behind it. So when you were being exposed to some of these kind of alternative or contrarian scientists, what what struck you about their approach compared to, say, the mainstream approach? Because it's as we talk about, I mean, the mainstream can be wrong, but it can also be right. And often alternative people are crazy and you have all sorts of conspiracies. So I'm curious what you noticed about the difference between some of the mainstream people and then, say, people like Lindzen or Curry. They were not scared of being challenged by the mainstream. So they because they they didn't have anything to lose and neither neither do i if there's a person out there who can uh, challenge me to a debate and convince me that the opposite is true then that's not a problem for me i've got nothing to lose but the mainstream they seem to have something to lose and that's why they want to silence us we we don't have this kind of agenda we just want to find the truth and that's what i noticed about all the skeptical scientists because they were really just interested in the science and the scientific results. For example, uh, I, I also um, I also heard a lot of speeches uh, given by Susan Crockford, who talks about the uh, polar bear extinctions. Mm-hmm. And of course, she doesn't she doesn't want the polar bears to die out. And she uh, she realized in her from her research that the polar bears aren't actually dying out. And why would she lie about those results? Because she cares about the polar bears, of course. So. That's just the difference is there doesn't seem to be an agenda behind the skeptical scientists. I mean, I think that that there can be. I mean, one thing we always have to watch out for is just confirmation bias. And you just Mm -hmm. think about I mean, even if I think about my own situation, so I didn't come in with an agenda, but now I have a certain kind of reputation for being pro fossil fuels. And so there's a question of, oh, if we discovered something about CO2 rises being catastrophic, that might make me look bad uh, in the past. And so I think one thing I notice is just, even if people do have incentives, like how do they deal with challenges? And and it, it really requires a commitment to say, even if, I, I mean, I remember when I was uh, 18 or something and I was deciding big issues in my life, like I made a commitment, okay, even if I discover I'm wrong at 80, I will admit that I'm wrong. And that that felt like a really big deal at the time. Exactly. Because I knew that it would be hard, but it was like, okay, the thing I care most about is that I will be objective. To, I'll do my best till the end, even if I'm wrong. And that doesn't come across from most people that I see. Yeah, and that's precisely why I make a distinction between climate deniers and climate realists. I would call myself a climate realist because, um, and you yourself are probably a climate realist yourself because you uh, look into um, alternative energy sources as well. I, I know that you had people on your podcast who talked about alternative energy sources and, for example, about nuclear energy. So you don't have this firm belief that there's no other way we need fossil fuels only mm-hmm. and you actually look into the the alternatives and um that really sets you apart from the climate deniers who who are the people that the mainstream thinks we are i think 
um, they think we just want to destroy the earth. We just want to destroy the planet and uh, cause lots of waste because we don't care. We're just narcissists. And that's not true. Actually, I'm one of the most environmentally friendly people I know um, just by default because I'm not that interested in shopping and traveling. And um, that doesn't make me a better or worse person, not at all. It's just that um, I think that this this entire climate change trend, yeah, really, it's just a trend. And many people just want to uh, hop on the bandwagon because because they can virtue signal that way. So let's talk about your trajectory. So you started off on this issue in particular less than two years ago. I mean, maybe even just a year and a half ago, if it's early 2019. How did you start to rise to, to prominence? Because although you're not as popular as we might wish, I mean, it would be great if you were, you got even one-tenth of what Greta got. Uh, you know, you have a lot of people watching you on YouTube. So how did that rise uh, come about? Yeah, I started a YouTube channel in May 2019, so almost a year ago. And uh, at first, I only talked about different issues, like, for example, the um, migration policies and yeah, some other issues. And then um, in summer, I decided now I've finally done enough research on the issue of climate change um, to post a video about this topic. And this was really important to me because um, I didn't want to spew any um, non-science about this, because what if I'm wrong? If I'm wrong, that I'm contributing to the destruction of the planet. So I was a bit. Yeah, I was very hesitant at first. And then, like I said, in summer, I, I finally came to the conclusion, this is this is what I not only believe in, but this is those are the results that I've gathered from all my research. And I feel confident enough to post a video about this. And so I did. Um, I uploaded a video in German on my YouTube channel um, just questioning climate change. So it wasn't even... Um, it didn't contain any hate speech or any uh, firm convictions about climate change. I, I just questioned some of the climate science that the IPCC put out there, um, basically. And then it got taken down immediately, just a few hours after I posted By the video. YouTube deleted it entirely. And they Wait, didn't YouTube? even give me a is reason. It, is there some German YouTube or is it just American YouTube? I don't know. Uh, it's probably some kind of German part of YouTube, but I don't really know. Um, but then what we did, my, my mother is a lawyer, not, uh, well, basically she's ma mainly lawyer for, for medical law, uh, but she, of course, she knows about all the different areas of law. So she actually sent a very strong worded letter um, to Google headquarters in, uh, in Ireland. And just a couple of hours, she gave them a deadline. Uh, they had to re-upload my video or give me a reason why uh, why it wasn't aligned with their policies. And um, yeah, uh, they actually re-uploaded my video mm. again. And now it's on my channel again. And the reason they wanted to take it down, obviously, is because mm. it had quite a lot of views. It got um, over 100,000 views, which is which was wow. substantial for my channel at that point because I had maybe 30,000 subscribers at that point. Yeah, and it was very popular, and especially because it got taken down afterwards. Of course, it got even, I got even more publicity because of that. And then I was invited by um, by Wolfgang Müller, who works for Eike. Eike is a German um, organization um, of of scientists who are basically um, climate realists, climate skeptics, and they invited me to their conference in Munich in November. And I attended the conference not to uh, f not to make money, not to uh, 
be part of uh, not to be part of ICA. Yeah, many people uh, asked me afterwards, and the media asked me afterwards, were you paid by ICA to go to go there? No, I wasn't. I just attended this conference um, as as part of the audience and just to enjoy all the speeches given by people like um, Susan Crockford, Lord Christopher Monckton, who's a good, good friend of me now, and um, he's doing this Climate of Freedom series on my YouTube channel with me right now. And um, people like Nia Shaviv and Henrik Svensmark, who talk about the solar cycles, um, some German scientists, Limburg, Rüdecke, yeah, and even more people. So it was just two days of speeches about climate change, climate skepticism, and that was mm -hmm. really fascinating. And then, like I said, Lord, Lord Christopher Monckton also gave a speech there, and I was fascinated by him. So I just decided to approach him, uh, sit down next to him, say hi, and uh, we had really long conversation over two days and then uh, at the end of the day he asked me would you like to just give a very short speech maybe five minutes just talk about your um what you think of the situation and um the fact that antifa was protesting outside even though we're just uh this is just a completely scientific conference nothing about hate speech or um nothing to to well um, to silence the other side, basically. But Antifa was protesting outside and it was, it was a bit dangerous to actually attend the conference. So I gave this very short speech in German, it's still on YouTube. Um, but uh, then, there, then Lord Christopher Monckton introduced me to uh, James Taylor, who works for the Hartland Institute. Now he's the president of the Hartland Institute. And um, James Taylor was interested in, in me as well. And he invited me to come to the... Um, Basically, it was like the anti-COP25 um, conference in Madrid. Tell, tell me what later. COP25, what COP stands for. Oh, that's, uh, I don't know what uh, what it stands for, but it's basically a huge conference of, of well, influential people from all over the world. Greta Thunberg was there as well, um, who talk about climate change and what we have to do about climate change. They, mm -hmm. they basically, they talk about uh, what we have to do in terms of climate policies, uh, CO2 taxes. And uh, there were many uh, protesters as well who uh, were fighting for climate justice. I remember them shouting, we need to fight for climate justice on the streets. Yeah, it was a bit crazy. Um, yeah, and so we had this conference uh, with the Hartland Institute where we had our own uh, scientists um, who gave speeches. Once again, it was an online conference. And um, I was asked once again, would you like to give a little speech at the end of the day? And once again, it was not scripted. It was very spontaneous. I was asked uh, to give the speech while I was there. So I didn't know about it beforehand. And this speech got quite a lot of views on YouTube. And then uh, James Taylor from the Hartland Institute afterwards asked me, would you like to work with us at the Hartland Institute? And uh, so I started working with them uh, at the beginning of January. So between January and March of 2020. And you've gotten, it seems like you've gotten a decent amount of mainstream press coverage, right? Yes. Yeah, that started in, I think, in December. Um, when I started working, or maybe in January, when I started working with the Hartland Institute, they put out basically like a press release and um, they provided information for the press to reach out to me um, if they were interested in an interview because um, the speeches that I uh, that they posted um, that I gave in, in Madrid, um, they got quite a lot of views. And then the Washington Post actually reached out to me. And so I, um, and they were, 
more interested in me than they thought they would be, I think, because um, at first they, they only wanted to um, basically make a short interview with me and it turned into two weeks of um, thorough research and they kept sending me new messages. Can you send me links to those sources? And I did. And then in the end, I was on the front page of the Washington Post. And then afterwards, of course, um, several different media outlets from all over the world reached out to me and I gave interviews basically every single day to media outlets from all over the world. I don't even know where all those articles and uh, podcasts and, I don't know, radio interviews are. <laughs> I didn't listen to all of them. Yeah, but that was how it really started. And then I was invited to CPAC, um, this huge um, conference of uh, Republicans, conservatives uh, in the U.S. in the U.S. in um, in Washington, and I was allowed to give a speech there and uh, represent the Hartland Institute. Um, they had a panel there and a live Q and A. Yeah, so that was quite the amazing experience. And uh, once we were there, um, Fox News wanted me to uh, to come um, to their show as well. So I was on Fox News and on Blaze TV. Yeah, that's basically how I got into the media sphere. <laughs> how do you feel about the characterization of anti-Greta? And I guess, how do you feel about Greta? I don't like being called the anti-Greta because I am, first of all, I didn't start as an anti-Greta. And second of all, they want to paint me as this, basically an anti-Christ. I think this climate change movement is almost a religion um, because I've never, never heard um, Greta Thunberg talk about the science and I don't shame her for that um, I don't think she's a bad person because of it because she's just a young girl and she hasn't even finished school yet and she can't know everything about science and I don't expect her to she's just an activist for climate change but she should at least know a bit <laughs> about what she's talking about but she doesn't she just uh, she just always refers to the experts who are those experts in the first place? I don't know. She never names any names, I think. And um, so that's the main problem. The problem is not Greta Thunberg herself, but she is misused. She's abused basically as this puppet, this climate symbol. Nobody looks at Greta Thunberg as the individual, the girl. They look at her as this climate symbol, as this, yeah, this prophet for climate change. And that's why they wanted to make me into this anti-Christ, the anti-Greta. But I'm not an anti-Greta. I'm Naomi Zeib. I do my own research and I'm not all about climate change or all about anti-climate change. I'm, I'm basically just, I was just fighting for free speech. That was my main objective. I like it. Well, let's talk about free speech then. So one reason I wanted you to come on today yeah. is you've been uh, experiencing some attacks. So give us some in terms of just your ability to speak freely about these issues. So give us the background on that. Yeah. So what happened uh, is the German state media authorities in German, they are called the um, Landesmedienanstalt. So basically, I live in North Rhine, Australia, and they have those media authorities and they sent me a letter that I had to take down three of my most influential videos, um, that, which were about climate change, of course. Um, the reason they gave was that I was basically trying to influence German politics through uh, an American think tank, the Hartland Institute. And that is absolutely ridiculous for several reasons. But let me first um, explain what they wanted me to do. They did not just want me to take down the videos. I had to uh, pay 400 euros just because they had to contact me, just because they were made aware of this issue. And so 
basically so to pay their fees. legal fees basically yeah exactly yeah and uh if i if i wasn't going to take down those videos i had to pay um 1000 euros a fine and still take down the videos of course and if i wanted to go to court of course that requires uh some money as well that comes with with its own costs, uh, but I decided to go to court. And that's why I am now involved in this court case because I am not willing to take down those videos. Absolutely not, because there's no reason why I should take them down. First of all, the, uh, they, they, uh, the, the law that they refer to is basically the um, service law, which mostly just applies to the really big media outlets, like, uh, the, the main state media, uh, ZDF, ARD, uh, are the ones that are very popular in Germany, uh, the state media. And I'm just a tiny YouTube channel at posting videos, my own videos that are not linked to the Hartmann Institute. And I got into climate change not because of the, the Hartmann Institute. It's basically, if you want to draw comparison, it's like, um, imagine you are very interested in cars. And so you start in, posting in videos what? about all your knowledge in cars. Oh, in cars. Cars. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, basically, you're very interested in cars or could be anything. And you start posting videos about uh, your knowledge about uh, cars. And then you, then uh, BMW or a different company, they want to hire you. And then somebody t says, but now you're hired by this company. So you're not allowed to post your knowledge about cars anymore because they benefit from it. That's ridiculous because you never wanted to make those videos for this company in the first place. But because you truly believe in what you're talking about, your knowledge about cars or whatever the subject is. And in this case, it's climate change. Then the second issue with this uh, case that I'm involved in is that the first video that they wanted me to take down is the one that already got taken down by YouTube back in 2019. And that was in summer before I even knew about the Hutton Institute. I had nothing to do with them. I didn't even know they existed. The second video that they wanted me to take down is one where I, um, where I gave a speech for the AFD, the Alternative Party in Germany, um, in, gen in no, February 2020. So it was this year. But it was completely unrelated to the Hutton Institute. Uh, a friend of mine uh, who is um, who who's in the AFD party, he reached out to me and asked me, would you like to uh, give a speech at our um, New Year's event, basically. And the Hartland Institute didn't even know about that. I, I told them afterwards. And then I think, um, yeah, and then I, I uploaded the video and I decided to also put some uh, English subtitles under my speech. Um, but it had nothing to do with the Hartland Institute once again. I did get some of the information that I used in the speech from the IKE event, uh, but mostly it was things that I learned from Lord Christopher Monckton, who has nothing to do with the Hartland Institute either. So this speech is completely my own, and they and the Hartland Institute did not tell me to to write the speech or post it on YouTube. And the, the third video is not does not contain anything related to climate change. It's basically just um, a video where I say, "Welcome to the Hartland Institute. This is what the Hartland Institute does, and now I'm working with them." So it doesn't even contain any propaganda about climate change, if you will. And so uh, the thing is, this um, those German state media authorities, they explicitly said in their letter to me that I'm threatening the climate friendly movement. So to me, that indicates that 
this would not have affected me if I was not a threat to the climate-friendly movement. This would not affect, for example, Greta Thunberg, or um, we have this, basically, she's similar to Greta Thunberg. Her name is Luisa Neubauer in Germany, who, um, who basically is a climate activist, a very popular climate activist in Germany as well. And this would never affect her. I'm, I'm pretty sure about that. And it's just in... In every in every sense of the matter, it is ridiculous, and they have no reason um, why I should take down my videos. So it's basically just a nuisance, and I I could go I, I could solve all of this on my own, but I decided I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go big this time, and I'm going to involve the press. I'm going to make this very public, and um, I get I'm going to get a good lawyer involved. Um, some people may know him. His name is um, Dr. Hans-Georg Maaßen. He's very popular in Germany. And yeah, because what they want to do is they want to silence me. And this is the last thing that they want. They don't want this case to be a public matter because then people will be will become aware of climate skepticism and they will be confronted with the issue and with the arguments from our side. So basically there's nothing i've got to lose i'm not going to gain any money anyway and even if i have to take down the videos in the end which i don't think i will because like i said they have no reason why i should take down those videos even if i had to take down the videos it doesn't matter anymore because now people will see what's going on and how they try to silence us and i think that will make them question the issue a lot more yeah, I think one great thing about this kind of thing is it's, you know, we, we live in an age where more and more parts of reality are potentially visible. And this has pros and cons, but you see it even with something like a, a police video. You know, we can see different things and there's an issue of how do we process these things. But I think yes. in general, it's good that there's more information about what's really happening in the world. But often people who get in certain situations, they suppress that. So there's a lot of really bad stuff that happens to people who have certain views on fossil fuels and climate, and they mm -hmm. just shut up. And so you don't see it. So it's very exciting to see it being uh, revealed. And it reminds me of a line in Atlas Shrugged that I'm not going to get perfectly, but it's basically one of the heroes says to the villains who are the the basically doing what Germany is doing in terms of controlling everyone's life. He says, do you, don't you know that all that we would need to do to destroy your whole infrastructure with all your, you know, your guns and your laws is just to name the exact nature of what you're doing. And when mm -hmm. people see, oh, this, this person has a thought and she wants to share it and we've decided mm -hmm. it's not conducive to our government. So we're going to suppress it. That's not something that makes them look good. And that will create intrigue about what you're thinking. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. So what I did is I started a fundraiser for uh, for this court case, and, um, and I'm very confident that this will be a huge benefit for uh, for freedom of speech in general, especially, of course, in in terms of freedom of speech related to climate skepticism. But it's just finally, I think we will be able to look behind the curtain of uh, of all the propaganda that is put out there and the way they try to silence us for no reason at all, basically. So and you mentioned there's a, the small ones amongst us. You mentioned there's a fundraiser. So how do people support this cause? Assuming I don't know if well, you still I, need support, but yeah, uh, I I always put a PayPal and a Patreon link under my videos, and um, of course I, I don't have a um, I can't say for sure right now how much it will cost in the end. Will probably quite a lot, but I I'm confident that I will be able to handle it. Um, I do know that I have a lot of support from all over the world. 
Um, and yeah, that, that's just amazing how people responded when uh, Lord Christopher Monckton released an, art, an article about this uh, issue on what's up with that, which is uh, climate change um, source of information basically online, uh, a big website about mm -hmm. climate skepticism. And um, he he asked he he was the one who basically started the fundraiser. It was a, his idea. And so, yeah, like I said, I'm very confident that all of this will work out very well in the end. So, yeah, it sounds like you expect this to be good for the cause of you're calling it climate realism. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I call it uh, climate thinking. Um, I'm curious, you know, given you've been able to influence a lot of people so far, what have you found most persuasive in terms of, you know, arguments you've used or tactics you've made? And particularly if there's anything you found effective with young people, I'm, I'm particularly interested in that. Yeah. But just asking questions, like, for example, mm -hmm. um, where does this, my, the, the, the favorite argument that they usually use is the consensus argument, of course. So I ask them, um, what is it exactly that they agree on? Is it just that climate change is real? Or is it um, that climate change is real, that man-made and catastrophic? Um, how can you define those terms? Where does the study come from? And then I usually explain the John Cook study to them and uh, why it has been heavily misconstrued and taken out of context. Um, and then I, I explain climate sensitivity to them that the main issue is not that CO2 is a greenhouse gas because yes, okay, that's true. And CO2 can contribute to some warming, but how much warming really? And the issue, of course, is that those climate models, they predict or they, they have a very um, very high climate sensitivity estimate that they use for their models. I think it's that uh, they say that uh, per doubling of CO2, there will be uh, there will be 4.1 degrees Celsius of warming. Uh, now it's even higher, I think, than their new models. And if you just look back at the temperature changes that we have experienced in the last 30 years, and you, um, you calculate the, um, the climate sensitivity based on those data, then you will come to a completely different result, which is just 1.5 degrees Celsius. So um, per doubling of CO2 emissions. So that's how I usually explain it to them. Um, the main topics that I address are the, the the consensus myth and the climate sensitivity. What exactly it even means and how you can calculate, um, yeah, the difference between what the climate models predict and what really has happened. What about the energy side of the equation? How much do you talk about that? I don't really talk about it very much, but I agree one hundred percent with you. What I always mention is that. We are not parasites to the to the to the planet or the climate. That in itself is is stupid anyway. Anyway, to say that we need to save the climate because what does climate mean? We can't save the climate. The climate is basically being personified, and that is strange to me. We shouldn't personify the climate or the planet. What we really want is humanism, as you mentioned all the time. We need to um, we need to think about what is the most effective way we can create a. Um, a progressive planet and a healthy planet and a clean planet for humans. And that is only possible because we have access to cheap and reliable energy sources. If we didn't have that, we would not be where we are today, which is an amazing state of, uh, of progress, of uh, technology and science. And yeah, like I said, it would not be possible without uh, everything that we've got. How much response have you gotten from young people? And I'm curious where you've gotten it from in terms of around the world? 
all over the world. Um, I just recently noticed that I've got a lot of support from Brazil, actually, and uh, lots of support from Australia, of course, because I was on Sky News Australia three times at this point. So uh, there are many people who like me from there. <laughs> Not a lot of support, support from Germany, of course. Um, the media really hates me in Germany. I think I can't think of one article or TV show whatever in Germany where, where I was represented fairly, um, which is quite disgusting, actually, the interview, because, yeah, those weren't even interviews. They just wrote stuff about me without asking me in the first place. They didn't interview me. And that's that really annoys me, because uh, if you interview me and you come to the conclusion that you hate me, at least you ask me, <laughs> at least you tried. Um, but uh, in the US, of course, I've got lots of support. Uh, yeah, basically all over the world, I, I get I get lots of kind messages. And of course, also in Germany. But um, personally, I don't have many supporters in my area. But I live in a small town that is very, um, where the Green Party is extremely strong and uh, all the skeptics are hated, basically. But that's okay. Not, not that many people recognize me. <laughs> So what are your what are your plans going forward? Let's say in the next five years. So you, you're 19 now, is that right? Yes, I'm 19 and uh, I'll turn 20 in August. And uh, yeah, I've got lots of plans. Like I would really like to start some kind of um, institute on my own um, to not just talk about climate change, but to really um, provide some kind of free education for uh, for young like-minded people to. Um, that has always been my dream, basically, to um, to provide a source of information uh, about libertarianism, the values uh, that I believe in, and the importance of freedom of speech uh, for young people, because they are being so indoctrinated right now, and they have been for many, many years. And uh, what I think is so horrible about that is that they are driven into this awful eco depression, depression, and they think that the world is racist and uh, we have to fight so much uh, inequality in the world. And that I think is really just based on a lot of propaganda. And that is atrocious because it's really, yeah, young people have no hope anymore. And when I look at Greta, I see that she she doesn't look healthy. She doesn't look happy. And she says it herself. She says that we have to panic. She says that we are stealing her childhood or that the uh, the older people, the boomers, of course, that she is stealing her childhood. And um, that's really sad because it only uh, contrib contributes to this worldwide divide that is going on. And I don't want people to panic. I want them to think. <laughs> yeah, that's your that's your classic. Uh, yeah, that's your classic. <laughs> line yeah it's so interesting because in a sense the childhood is getting stolen but almost purely through bad ideas even if you look yes. at situations where there's a lot of unjust stuff happening i mean you know today you look at unjust places in the united states still i mean even m most people even in the worst 10 percent of the u.s there's still just enormous existential opportunity in terms of what mm -hmm. you can do with the right mindset, um, you know, poor, you know, you can grow up poor, um, even like in a high crime area. I mean, that's really bad, but you can escape that. People can do that. But what I see is, yeah. is, is the mindset is so bad. And th this uh, obviously I think from our perspective applies to climate where people think the climate is going to kill me, right? It's going to prevent me. Mm -hmm. Like there are going to be all these storms or something. And so I should just be depressed about the future. And you just think there's never been yeah. more knowledge, more freedom, more resources to work with. I mean, more machine power, as, as, as I talk about, where you can just do so much. And yet people have yeah. these myths about how, how the world has never been worse. 
And so that makes their mindset bad. So it is this kind of intellectual uh, child abuse. So even even though there's this opportunity in the in the world as it exists in their mind, it's so constricted. Yeah, and when it comes to social injustices, individual acts of hatred will always exist. I just don't see the systemic issue. And I always say offense is taken, not given. So I think everyone, if we if we promote individualism again, then everyone will see that it comes down to the effort that you put into your own life. And you shouldn't be envious of other people if they have more than you look up to them and then you can um, you can learn from them. That is a lot more interesting, a lot more fun and exciting to live your life based on, uh, on, on, on curiosity rather than just envy and asking yourself, why would this other person be so much better and successful than me? Am I just not a good person? Because I think that just really, it really puts you down. And that I think is the source of a lot of depression that uh, especially young people are dealing with right now. I think they're so, just trying to find a purpose for themselves. And that's why they become activists, climate activists and social justice activists. And I get that. I do understand that. But I think there's a better way, a healthier way to uh, to deal with this lack of purpose and this uh, try, just trying to find a direction in life. Yeah, I think that's just such a, a huge thing that's not acknowledged much because people act like the cause itself is really motivation. So it's, I care this much about the climate. I care this much about racial injustice. And, and the racial injustice one is interesting because, I mean, I, there's real racial injustice and there are real problems, but everybody, it suddenly became their number one concern in the world about three weeks ago. And there's something, I, I imagine it falls flat with a lot of people that oh, suddenly every company, this is what they care about. And there's, there's something about it's, I mean, purpose is so necessary in life. And, and so when people don't have that for a whole number of, of reasons, it's so easy. Like if you can give someone something that gives them purpose, but that also gives them, this is not the same, but I think it can be related is status. So people can feel like, oh, yeah. I'm a good person if I do this. And then it's status plus non-shame because there's a lot of shame associated with not jumping on it. And that's how I think you see all these people claiming in lockstep, oh, I climate catastrophe is the thing I care about most. I'm going to stop it. Like, I, I'm so passionate about it. And yet they didn't care about it before it became this object of status. And I just find that a very disturbing thing. And I also find it interesting how some people don't find that appealing because I never found it appealing. And it doesn't sound like you found it appealing. And I, I would wonder what the ingredient is for people not to find it appealing to join these status causes of the moment it's because i always wanted to be a skeptic and i always want to speak the truth not just because i want to but because i'm terrified of of myself lying i know what lying can do because i know that lying is what contributed to the success of the nazis and the socialists and a lying society is basically the worst that can happen a silent and a, a lying society a lying of just lying parts of society and the rest stays silent and doesn't question what's going on that's exactly how totalitarianism succeeds and that's what i see right now and that's why i think it's important that we speak up and um of course it's instantly gratifying if you can virtue signal if you can po post your black square on instagram and uh, get lots of praise for being so racially aware and woke 
and um, to be a climate activist and not go to school and instead of those Fridays for Future protests. Of course, that's, they think that they get this sense of community and this we are strong together uh, against injustice. Um, but that's not really what they are doing. They are they're, they are making themselves a puppet to a system that is trying to use them as basically, I, I would almost say an army um, to promote um, ideas that are just based on propaganda and uh, that are funded sometimes by special interest groups and infiltrated by terroristic organizations like Antifa, which is horrible. They um, Antifa actually um, forced or didn't force, but maybe, for example, sometimes they, they paid black people to throw rocks at the police. And um, that's just atrocious because it really um, it puts it really it, it contributes to this racial divide and makes white people think that black people that all black people are uh, are bad people because they throw rocks at the police, which is not true. Not all black people can um, support this Black Lives Matter movement. And it's of course it's okay to say Black Lives Matter, and it's also okay to say all lives matter, all lives matter. But those are not just statements; they are movements. Or especially Black Lives Matter is a movement, and all lives matter. It just it doesn't. It doesn't really, it's not the, the smart comeback against uh, Black Lives Matter because it doesn't invalidate the movement. They are just trying to say, well, all lives matter, of course. And yes, of course they do. But they are not just statements anymore. To, um, to deconstruct and debunk the entire Black Lives Matter narrative, you have to talk about what does this movement actually do? Where are the donations actually going to? Because they are actually going to the Democratic Party, for example. And that, I think, is political corruption in a sense. So... Um, to just say hashtag Black Lives Matter or hashtag white, uh, white Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, All Lives Matter, it doesn't really get to the root of the problem. And um, that is the most important thing, I, I think, with most issues. We have to look at the root of the problem. It's usually not what we're talking about at the surface. It's not about the, um, the black and white issue. All right. Well, obviously, you don't shy away from controversial uh, opinions, which I can... Um... I can relate to. So I guess one more thing on this. I mean, do you just remember from the time you were very young being independent and particularly with this issue of honesty? Because I, I feel like like I can't really lie to myself. So if I just mm -hmm. jump on to a cause, like internally, I'm going to know, okay, I'm full of it. Like, I don't know this. I just jumped on it yesterday. But it seems like I don't want to be too elitist, but like it just seems like some people, they just it feels really comfortable to jump on something. And it, it makes me sick. Like it makes me anytime there's any, I mean, one rule I have basically is anytime there's an easy way of getting status, I assume that there's something very wrong going on in, in the society yeah, because was, they're acting like they're controversial. Yeah. But if, if they're saying something uncontroversial, then it doesn't really give you any mm -hmm. status and it's normal. So anyway, you were saying something? When I was younger, I was usually the social outcast, but not in a bad way. It's just that I, I never got along uh, with the other people um, around me because uh, I was a lot younger than most of them. I uh, skipped first grade and I uh, went to school when I was very young. I, um, so basically I was in second grade when I was only five years old and everyone else was a lot older and uh, they already had all their friends. And so I was, um, I was more focused on reading and, um, um, yeah, and studying basically. And it wasn't, yeah, those were not sad times. It's just what I enjoyed the most. And I always had a small friend group. So 
um, I didn't have much to lose and I had those friends to talk to and often especially in high school I, uh, I even yeah I did lose some friends because of those controversial topics um, but at that point I was in too deep already and I, I couldn't stop talking and researching about it and that was always the most important thing to me to just always do my research and I knew that um, even if I lose friends because of this and they might not have been true friends uh, in the first place. And I'm not saying that friends need to agree on everything 100%, but they should be able to have discussions about those issues, I think, personally. And um, if those issues actually destroy a friendship, that to me is a sign that those friendships were never stable in the first place. And I know that through, through all, of, all of this, I gained lots of friends all over the world, and those are genuine friendships. And so, yeah, that's, I always see the long-term gain. <laughs> and that, I mean, that's one benefit of, of being public. I, I certainly enjoy it. It's just that, I mean, there is a certain stage at which being controversial was socially problematic, but if you're public about it and you get known for your own independent thinking, then you just yeah. bring all these people towards you that you would have never met. And so I generally mm -hmm. find the reaction the world has to me very positive. Like, I think I get tons of support uh, from the world. And even yeah. interestingly, when I meet people, like I'll talk to a dentist or something like that, when I tell them my views, so often people, they think, yeah, there's gotta be something to that. Like, yeah. oh, I've kind of wondered about that or like, oh, you can think that. And, and then I'll be like their mm -hmm. little confidant. This happens in Laguna Beach a bunch where I'll, like, I'll meet someone and they like, yeah. oh my gosh. You think that that's really interesting because they feel so stifled mm -hmm. by the existing establishment uh, thought leadership. So it's actually like at a certain point, I, I can I can get it if you're working at Google or something like that and everybody is doing something and you're not. But at least for those of you who are considering being public and you're independent minded, it has these incredible social benefits. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. I can absolutely relate. And when I um, talk to people about those issues like for example the climate issues that I don't even know or those people don't know what I'm doing or promoting and they mention something uh, just uh, something very small about climate change um, like uh, isn't it awful that it's getting warmer and yeah something like that or that we're emitting so much CO2 then I start well actually <laughs> and I start um, having discussion about these topics with them and then usually they are actually very interested in that when they when we have individual conversations it usually works out very well it mm. becomes a problem when I talk to an audience that doesn't like me or when I'm in the media because uh, because they 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 misrepresent me as um, whatever climate denier. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, the one on one is, is great. And one nice thing about just the Internet is you get to have all these one on one interactions through YouTube because mm -hmm. it's one to many, yes. but it's all all one on one. Exactly. Um, so as yeah. we're wrapping up, any any final thoughts you want to share with the Power Hour audience? Or any, any way the they can help you? I don't you. want you to panic. I want you to think. <laughs> well, um, I've got my own YouTube channel. And I'm uh, right now I'm uh, putting out uh, more videos again. I'm also, I, I started doing live streams, uh, which is quite enjoyable. Um, I was very self-conscious at first, but it's 
fun. <laughs> and so we are, me and uh, Lord Christopher Monkton, uh, we are working on this um, Climate of Freedom series where we expose or fact check um, the climate propaganda that is being put out there and uh, explain the climate science in a very simple and concise manner, but with uh, statistics and some uh, sources in the description. So yeah, that is really amazing to work with people that I myself look up to and to have friends now that used to be idols. That's quite amazing. Like you, for example. I, I never thought that I would be on your podcast one day. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's cool. I remember when I started Power Hour. That was one of my main goals was just to meet everybody because I just would read mm -hmm. these people. Like I, I've told Robert Rice this. I think I tell him every time he's on the podcast now, but you know, at the beginning, I thought I can never get this guy. This guy will never talk to yeah. me. It's just, it's this, this sense of, oh, well, he's up there and I'm down here. And then at a certain point, you just realize, okay, everybody's just an individual and they have their own values. So when you overlap, then you get to, uh, to yeah. interact with them. So it's, it's, uh, and it's, for me, it's cool to learn that you were influenced by my work. Cause I had no idea when I saw your emergence, I just, I probably, I don't, I think I might've reached out at some point or I forget how exactly it worked, mm -hmm. but, um, I just knew, oh, this person is an independent thinker on these issues. And then it's, oh my gosh, this person has listened to the last, whatever, eight years of power hour. And that's cool. And that's one of the benefits of, of doing something like this. And, uh, you know, hope mm. it happens many, uh, many more times. So Naomi, thanks for, uh, for coming on the show. Thanks for sharing your story. And we will just give everyone the links to go to if they want to see okay. your work and support your work. Yeah, you can uh, mostly just type my name, Naomi Seibt. Uh, my second name is spelled S-E-I-B-T. It's a German name uh, in YouTube. And uh, then you will find my channel. And I always put my social media links in the description. At Twitter, uh, On Twitter, I am at Seibt Naomi. So it's just my name backwards. And on Instagram, I am Naomi Seibt 2000 because I was born in 2000. Yeah. And I also have a Telegram and a Facebook, both on my YouTube channel. <laughs> yeah. All right. There you go. All right, Naomi, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Naomi Zeipt for coming on the show. It's very cool to see instances where the work that I've done is influencing another person, particularly when that other person becomes highly influential themselves. I have a kind of mental model. I think of it as being a magnet. So you can think about like magnets can magnetize other things so they can create other magnets or at least exert magnetic pull. So it's, it's cool to create things that then have a magnetic pull on other people. And then they have a magnetic pull, uh, on, on other people. So it's, it's, uh, very proud of the fact that my book, Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, and in particular, this show Power Hour has really empowered, no pun intended, people like Naomi to have a really big influence on the world. And one, one cool thing about it that I think has a lot of implications is that you never know who's being reached by something. I mean, certainly when I first recorded Power Hour, she mentioned the, you know, all the back episodes starting in 2011. What was Naomi? I mean, she must have been 11 back then or 10. I mean, obviously she wasn't even around uh, to hear it, but who knows how many people are hearing these things when they're looking for an interesting uh, interesting viewpoint. So it, as, as a content creator, it's motivation. But the reason I want to stress that here is, is just as a listener to this content, if you like this content or you like my other work, it shows the power of sharing it. I mean, there's got to be other Naomi sites out there 
who have not heard these arguments, but if they're exposed to them, they may become really passionate about them. I got an email recently from someone in San Francisco who said that, in San Francisco, keep in mind, they said his 11-year-old son was a huge fan of mine and I think something like got asked for my book for his birthdays. I mean, you never know where these things are going to come from. But what you do know is if you, particularly whenever you meet inquisitive people, if you share the pro-human approach to energy and environmental issues, including climate issues, you're going to move people in a better direction. So I hope that's incentive to just think of ways of sharing good stuff. And one way to do that is to sign up for my newsletter. You can just sign up, just go to industrialprogress.com and uh, enter in your email to sign up for the newsletter. And then that'll give you stuff every week that you can share. But more broadly, I'd say just whether it's my stuff or other stuff, think about what is the, you know, what's the best stuff that's out there on crucial issues and then what thoughtful people can you share it with? And there's just, it's so easy to underrate the power of sharing. Sometimes we think, oh, it, it requires a lot of money to influence people. It requires a lot of power. But sometimes it's just a matter of, uh, you know, the equivalent of handing them a pamphlet. Now you can do it, it, it digitally. And if you think of successful movements in the past, so much of it has just been sharing with people. And part of it is when you share stuff enough, you not only influence people in small, in small degrees, but sometimes you'll create a whole new influencer or contribute to a whole new influencer. So I'm, I'm proud to have had a positive influence on Naomi and, uh, I'm proud to have had a positive influence on a whole bunch of people, and you can too, by sharing the right kinds of content. Okay, that is it for this week. Hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me at alex at alexepstein.com. As I mentioned, you can sign up for the newsletter at industrialprogress.com. If you're interested in speaking or media, you can go to industrialprogress.com slash speaking. And if you want to support our work, including the work that reaches lots of young people like Naomi, you can go to industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. Next week, I'll be back with, uh, hopefully with another guest. There are a couple of guests that I'm working on getting on the show. I don't know if they'll come, so this is not a commitment, but there are two really interesting thinkers with new books that address climate catastrophism and counter it. One is Michael Schellenberger, who has a book called Apocalypse Never, and another is Bjorn Lomborg, who's, I cannot, I can't remember exactly off the top of my head what the title of his new book is, but they're both coming out this month, which is June 2020. I just started apocalypse never last night. And it's really, really good. I, I myself am learning quite a bit from it. So I, I've had Mike on the show before, but I hope we can have him on again. He's He's got just tons of, of fascinating insight. And he's he's always been really good on nuclear energy. And he's always been really good on some of the excesses of the environmental movement. But he's really focused now on not just those things, but on refuting all kinds of catastrophism. And I think that's great that he's focused on that. And it, it just it just paves the way for a much more pro-human movement of people concerned about environmental issues. And then um, Bjorn's work on a lot of this stuff has been really good. I haven't started his book yet. I just got my reader's copy, but both of those should be really interesting and certainly interesting interviews. So I'm going to work toward bringing them on 
and I'll look for other guests. If, by the way, if you have any ideas for guests, uh, feel free to also email me at alex at alexepstein.com. But in any case, new guest or not, I will be back next week. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.